appreciate that this morning. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Exodus. We've been uh, studying through the book of Exodus. And we're going to be looking at uh, the end of chapter 6, starting verse 28 through chapter 7, verse 7. <clears throat> so I want to read this illustration to you today. As it talks about the sovereignty of God, we're going to see a little bit about that this morning as well. How free am I? How does God's sovereignty interact with our free will? Do we even have free will, or is our life's course determined by God or by other forces beyond our control? If you're a film goer, you may be able to think of a number of big screen characters who've struggled with these questions. First, there was Truman Burbank, played by Jim Carrey. The Truman Show told the story of his dawning realization that his entire life, including his job, house, marriage, neighborhood, friends, was constructed and orchestrated by TV producers who had turned his entire existence into a reality TV show viewed by millions of people around the world. When the penny finally drops, his mind is sent into turmoil and he becomes desperate to try to escape his phony existence. Then there was Neo in The Matrix, famously swallowing the red pill and having his eyes open to the reality that all human experience was just simulated reality. The truth was that human beings were simply an energy source for the machines which held them in slavery. Neo made it his quest to fight for freedom against these machines. A third film, The Adjustment Bureau, saw Congressman David Norris, played by Matt Damon, bristling at the idea that his relationship with the only woman he has ever really loved must be ended because it's not part of the predetermined quote-unquote plan for his life. He won't stand for it and promptly decides to fight this destiny using nothing but the brute force of his own love-struck willpower. Now, these are just a few of the films that explore issues of human freedom and determination. And that's just, uh, that, is, that it is just such a common subject all only serves to underline how deeply such themes resonate with us. The thought of being mere puppets in someone else's show or pawns being moved around some great chessboard is an outrage to us. And so we're going to see the sovereignty of God today as it pertains to Pharaoh in this passage of Scripture. And we're going to see that in this whole thing, through this whole passage today, these verses that we're going to look at, we're going to see that we can know God through His attributes. And I've learned to know God through some attributes. I have learned to know Him as healer. I've actually experienced that for myself and for others. I've experienced him as a provider, as a guide, as father, as sovereign, the right, the rule and rules rightly in my life, as holy, as omnipotent, omniscient, and, all, uh, and omnipresent, so all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present with us. I've learned to know him as just, as loving, as unchanging, as majestic, as good, as faithful, merciful, gracious, and eternal. Those are just the ones I could think about this week. But I know that I've learned to know God through many of his other attributes as well. So I want you to think today, this, answer this question in your mind, through what attributes have you gotten to know God? What attributes have you like, I've really experienced God through that? In Genesis chapter 5, verse, verse 22 through chapter 6, verse 12, we learned what God would do for the Israelites. The Lord uh, made seven I will statements concerning the Israelites in that passage of Scripture. And through his liberation, adoption, and provision, the Israelites understood that God was Lord. And the same would be true for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. 
As we're going to see today, the Lord made two I will statements in this passage uh, concerning Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And through what God was going to do to them, they would learn that God is Lord. And so what the author wants us to learn today is just our big idea that we can know God through his attributes. And we see his attributes displayed through his mighty acts. And so as we think about that and let that resonate with you this morning, would you just bow your heads as we commit this passage to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we come to you today as a people hungry for your word. Lord, we want to hear your voice today. Lord, I especially want your voice to be heard and not my voice. I just, would you please speak to your people through your cracked and chipped vessel today? I just come in humility, Lord God. I need your strength. I need the power of your Holy Spirit to fill me, to speak your words. And so, Lord, help us to know you through your many attributes as we study this passage. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking at about, I think, four or five R words today. Repetition is the first one. And so look at verses 28 to 30, and this is what God's word says. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? And so what we see in verses 28 to 30 is a repetition of what the author said in verses 10 to 12. So if you flip back to chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, let's look at those verses together and see what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me, since I speak with faltering lips? There we go again. A similar thing. And you know what was in between those two is this uh, genealogy that we talked about last week. And so sharing the same information again is an example of, of what they call resumptive repetition. And so the narrator is resuming or the narrative, and so the author repeats some information to refresh the reader's memory concerning what was just said previously. And so what we see again is Moses protesting. John Corson says this in his commentary, this is the seventh time Moses protests. Like Moses, we have a tendency to argue, but again, God didn't give up on Moses, and he won't give up on you. Aren't you grateful for that truth today? That's our first principle, is that God will not give up on us. I, I, that's encouraging. I think it's encouraging. It is for me. You know, we may argue with the Lord about what he's calling us to do, or we, or we, may, or we may just flatly refuse to do it. But the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows what he wants to accomplish through us, and he is patient with us, just like he was with Moses. That attribute of patience, we can know God through the attribute of patience. He's so patient with us. How many of us are currently struggling with the, with the Lord or giving him excuses about why we cannot do what he's calling us to do? Now, you don't have to raise your hand today. That's between you and God. But I want you to think about that seriously. What are you currently arguing with the Lord about or giving him excuses that you can't do it? And maybe you're ready to just take this first next step today, and that's to rejoice in the fact that God will not give up on me, but will wait patiently for me to be obedient. I know he did that with me. Most of you know my story. 
you know, I worked in children's ministry for a lot of years with Child Evangelism Fellowship and then another ministry in California called Every Generation Ministries. And uh, when I first came into Child Evangelism Fellowship, I was calling uh, people and asking them to, for prayer and financial support. And one of the families that I met uh, at, at Prince Street in Shippensburg, when I called them, um, he said, we will certainly be praying for you. And yes, we'll also be part of your financial team. But I always thought God was going to have you be a pastor. Mm. So I just uh, filed that away in my mind. And 13 years went by before I responded to the Lord to come into pastoral ministry. You know, I said no, but he was patient with me, wasn't he? So I know God through this attribute of patience, right? And then when I went home and told Judy that God was calling me to be a pastor, she said, well, he told me a long time ago that I was going to marry a pastor. <laughs> she had to wait a lot longer than just those 13 years. But anyhow, we can know God, and so we can rejoice in the fact that God will not give up on us, that he'll wait patiently for us. I want to give you some biblical background to help with that today. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, tells us this. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Does that sound like God's not going to give up on us? He's going to be there for us. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 tell us this. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Is he going to be with us? Yeah. I'll just think about Psalm chapter 23. Just listen. This, this is the words of, of Jesus, right, of God speaking. David's the author of it, but listen to him as our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Does that sound like he's going to be with us? That he's never going to give up on us? That sounds like it to me. And so the Lord did not answer Moses' question directly about why would Pharaoh listen to me with someone who has faltering lips? You know, we talked about it being uncircumcised lips. Instead, he encouraged Moses with the fact that he was in control. Moses would be God's representative to Pharaoh. We see that in verses 1 and 2. That's our second point this morning is representative. Then the Lord said to Moses... See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. So we see Moses being this representative. God responded to Moses' objection by telling him that he would be God to Pharaoh. Now, in the original Hebrew, there is no preposition attached to God. But the NIV adds the word like, so you can just strike that out. Because in the original Hebrew, it's, it's saying this, see, I have made you God to Pharaoh. So what we have to understand is that Moses did not actually become divine, but rather he was put in a position of authority and power over Pharaoh. That's what God's saying here to, to, to Moses. He said, I've made you God. I've put you in authority 
and power over Pharaoh. And then Aaron becomes this prophet. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 16, we saw that it, it would be as if Moses was God to Aaron also. And in that same verse, we also see that, that Aaron would be Moses' mouth. And so that idea is further developed here with Aaron being Moses' prophet. A prophet in the Old Testament was the mouthpiece of God for the people. They were to do and say everything the Lord instructed them to do and say, no matter how difficult it was going to be. And I'll tell you, the prophets in the Old Testament had to share hard things with the rulers and people of the day. They had a thankless job. It wasn't easy. It wasn't saying, oh, this is so great. God's going to do all this for you. No, it was more like the Lord's message was punishment for their wickedness if they didn't repent and turn. Imagine having to go to the President of the United States and saying to him, if you don't repent and turn, like God's going to come in here and he's going to wipe out this nation. That's what these prophets were doing. It wasn't this feel-good message. It was a difficult message. But they were to do and say everything that God had told them to do. And that's exactly what the Lord's telling Moses here. He tells him, say everything. The Lord says to Moses, I'm commanding you what to say. I'm putting words in your mouth, and you need to say everything. And as we'll see in the remainder of Exodus, Moses do not, does not always use Aaron as his mouthpiece or prophet. There were times when Moses spoke directly to Pharaoh himself. And so Aaron would be the one who would tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of Egypt. The Lord uh, told Moses everything that would happen with Pharaoh as they approached him. So look at verses 3 to 5 in chapter 7, and we see that uh, there's this ruler concept coming up here. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. What we see here is our second principle. When it says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart, that is the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He has the right to rule, and he rules rightly in our lives. And so what we see through God hardening Pharaoh's heart is that he is sovereignly accomplishing his plan and purpose. So we can know God through his attribute of sovereignty in our own lives. You know, the book of Exodus is really about Yahweh and not Pharaoh or the Israelites. It's all about knowing who God is. He wanted to be known by the Egyptians. He wanted the Israelites to know who he was, that he would provide for them and he would save them and he would redeem them and he would uh, take them to the land that he promised. He would provide for them. That's what he wanted them to know. And he wanted the Egyptians to know that he was all-powerful and that the gods that they worshipped in Egypt were nothing. They were wood and stone. They were nothing. And so, like what McKay says, when God is said to harden the human heart, it is then argued he does not override the will of the individual, but permits the individual to harden his own heart. Consequently, God allows individuals to resist his will by withdrawing any restraining influence upon them or by introducing the circumstances which he knows will lead uh, to this defiant action on their part. They take the action themselves, and what God has permitted is described as if he had done it directly. 
It's not that God is going to introduce evil into Pharaoh's heart. That was not needed. It was already there. So God's just removing his restraining um, influence. And he's guiding and directing. So our third principle is a sub-principle of the second one, and that God will allow us to have our heart's desire. Just like God withdrew any restraining influence upon Pharaoh and did not override his will, he will withdraw his restraining influence upon us and not override our will. The Lord's not going to force us to do anything against our will. Paul, writing to the Roman believers in chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 25, listen to these words as Paul writes. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Do you understand what Paul's saying there? He's saying creation, what God has created, what we can see, declares who he is. I love that. I love that part of scripture. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Now listen to what happens. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. See, God's not going to force us to do his will. He's not going to override our will. He'll give us over to a depraved mind. Now, certainly the Lord grieves when we choose to harden our hearts toward him and his perfect plan and purpose for us. So let me ask you a couple of questions to apply it to your life today. In what areas of your life are you currently hardening your heart to the Lord? Do you recognize that God has withdrawn any restraining influence upon you and it's not overriding your will? You know, sometimes we can pray and think that the Lord is answering us, right? And he's approving of something that he says in his word is wrong. We're just fooling ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. Is the Holy Spirit prompting you about something you are currently doing because it's wrong? Is the Holy Spirit prompting you about something the Lord wants you to do, but you're resisting? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit? Maybe you're ready to take that second next step on the back of your communication card, and that's to confess my hard heart about, and you fill in the blank, and follow God's sovereign plan and purpose for me. He wants to accomplish his plan and purpose in your life, and he won't force us to do that. We have to yield ourselves to him. And so in, the, in these verses, verses 3 to 5, we see the first and second I will statements in, uh, that involve the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. 
part of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart will be seen in the fact that although the Lord would multiply his miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, Pharaoh would not listen to Moses or Aaron. The Lord told Moses ahead of time that even though Pharaoh is going to experience many signs and wonders through him, Pharaoh would not listen to him. And those signs and wonders would not soften Pharaoh's hard heart. McKay says this, it's, it was in one respect not surprising that Pharaoh would not acknowledge that uh, what was so clearly spelled out in the ensuing signs and wonders, to have done so involved abandoning all his claims to supremacy. He fought to the last to avoid giving up the ideology that underpinned his power. Do you understand? Like back in these uh, biblical times, Pharaoh was looked at as God. And if he were to recognize that God is Lord, he would have to say, I'm not God. I'm not supreme. So he's like fighting tooth and nail to the very end to avoid having to declare that. When Pharaoh would refuse to listen to Moses and Aaron, then God would move to phase two, which is where we find the second I will statement. It's this. Um, it involved God's mighty power. And so this is our fourth principle today, that God is all-powerful. It's another one of his attributes. His power is going to be displayed through laying his hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment. All of this was a forewarning of the ten plagues that the Lord is about to unleash on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. While Pharaoh's magicians were able to duplicate the initial sign, which was turning a staff into a snake. Remember, all of his magicians did that too. You're going to hear about that next week. And the first two plagues, which was water to blood, and then the frogs that came up out of the Nile. Eventually, with the third plague, they would recognize the finger of God for the last eight through the mighty acts of judgment, the Lord would bring out his divisions, his people, the Israelites. The author uses the same word as he did in, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 26, when he uses the word divisions. It's a military term. It's to describe the Israelites. And Kyle and Dulich say, armies is used of Israel with reference to its leaving Egypt equipped and organized as an army according to the tribes to contend for the cause of the Lord and fight the battles of Jehovah. And so the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and laid his hand on Egypt through mighty acts of judgment so they would know that he was the Lord. And again, that takes us back to our big idea that we can know God through his attributes. He is all-powerful. We can know who he is through that attribute. And then the Egyptians will know that God is the Lord. Merida says this, Notice there are two ways to know Yahweh. First, you may know him by experiencing his mercy of salvation. That was back in, in uh, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Second, you may know him by experiencing his wrath and judgment, chapter 7, verses 4 to 5. Everyone will eventually acknowledge that he is God. My favorite passage of Scripture in the New Testament is Philippians chapter 2. And verses 10 and 11 say this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So true. And so we see that eventually we will all bow. Now, the awesome nature of what will happen to them, talking about the Egyptians, and around them will be such that the Egyptians will no longer be able to entertain any doubts about the reality and supremacy of the Lord. Uh, McKay mentions that in his commentary. God would make himself known through his power, 
God's sovereignty was evident through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, which caused God to act in, in a mighty way so that, the, so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord. And with Moses' objections satisfied, we see that he and Aaron do one thing. It's verse 6. They are respectful. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. They were obedient. Moses wrote this narrative after they had been set free from Egypt, so he's able to say that he and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. They went to Pharaoh, performed their miraculous signs and wonders, told him to let the Israelites go out of his country. And so our fifth principle is this, that God is pleased when we obey him. It took a little bit, but Moses was obedient to the Lord. He didn't argue anymore. Moses was able to look back on his obedience and realize that the Lord was pleased with him and Aaron and that the Lord was glorified through their obedience because the Egyptians knew who God was. I know the same is true for me. When I've been obedient to the Lord, I can look back and recognize that God was pleased with me. But more importantly, he was glorified through my obedience because people know who God is. And so have you experienced the same thing when you've been obedient? God is glorified, and you recognize that God is pleased with you? Maybe you're ready for the third next step today, and that's to obediently do, and you fill in the blank, so that God will be pleased and glorified. When we're obedient to the Lord, others will be able to know who He is, and so we can know God through His attributes. Moses and Aaron's obedience came at a ripe old age. That's our last point, ripe. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I told Mark I might get in trouble for this one, but anyhow, let's keep moving forward. <laughs> Look at verse 7. It says this, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So here's our sixth principle. We are never too old to serve the Lord. These guys started at 80 and 83. Now, of course, the flip side of that's true, too. We're never too young to serve the Lord. So you young people, I don't want you to think, oh, I have to wait till I'm 80 to start serving the Lord. No. Timothy was a young man. <laughs> and here's the, the important part. Whenever he calls us, at whatever age we are, we need to be obedient. So is the Lord calling you today? Will you answer his call? D.L. Moody once said that Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody, and 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. Moses is now on the threshold of his final period when he learns what God can do through him because he is totally dependent on him. Isn't that true? It took me a long time, it wasn't 40 years, to realize that I was a nobody. <laughs> and I'm still learning what God can do through me, who thought I was somebody, but learned that I'm a nobody. So as we review, are you ready to rejoice in the fact that God will not give up on you, but will wait patiently for you to be obedient? Are you ready to confess Confess your hard heart about whatever it is that's there and follow God's sovereign plan and purpose for you. 
Are you ready to obediently do whatever he's calling you to do so that he will be pleased and glorified? You know, as a body of believers, we can rejoice in the fact that God will not give up on us, but will wait patiently for us to be obedient. And as a body, we need to confess our hard heart uh, and follow God's sovereign plan and purpose for us. And we can obediently do what God's calling us to do so that he will be pleased and glorified. I want to share this closing illustration with you to let you know that it's ne- you're never too old to serve the Lord. <clears throat> As a 15-year-old girl in 1927, Lois Seacrest promised God she'd go overseas as a missionary, perhaps to Africa or India, helping the needy. But Lois never made that trip of mercy. At 23, she married uh, Gallon Prater, a handsome farmhand who became a heavy drinker. Many years later, Gallon uh, did become a Christian and testify about the peace of Jesus to his drinking buddies. Uh, but by then, he was almost 80 years and nearing death. When he died January 9, 1988, Lois's childhood desire of becoming missionary returned. At first, she resisted. At age 76, she felt her opportunity to serve overseas as a missionary had slipped away. I said, Lord, I'm too old to go now. I can't do this, Lois admits. But this great-grandmother was determined to fulfill her unforgotten promise. Lois, pricked by the memory of ignoring God's call, uh, calling as a teenager, would not refuse a second chance at becoming a missionary. So at 87, Lois Prater has become the unlikely builder of an orphanage in the Philippines, a, lifelong, a lifeline to 35 children whose lives have been rescued from neglect, begging in the streets, and parental abuse. Today, which is when this was written in 2000, the 35 orphans living in the two-story, 2,000-square-foot white stucco home call Lois Lola, which means grandmother in their native Tagalog language. Lois's children, as she calls them, um, range in age from eight months to 10 years. Each of their stories is heartbreaking. Lois has built the orphanage without taking out a loan, relying instead on individual financial support from across the United States. Because of her age, she is not supported by any church denomination and depends solely on private donations. When asked if uh, that makes her nervous, she says confidently, I serve a mighty God. He's in control. I feel I'm not talented enough to do any of this, but God enables me. My responsibility is to do what I can. Isn't that a great story? 87 years old, obedient to the Lord and serving the Lord doing what he's called her to do that's what Moses and Aaron were doing at 80 and 83 they were obedient to the Lord and he was glorified through that and he was pleased with his servants and you know just like Lois and just like Moses and just like Aaron and the Egyptians they all got to know God through his many attributes through his mighty power and acts so what I want to share with you this morning. And uh, as, a, as the Holy Spirit just works in your hearts and minds today, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit this to the Lord in prayer? And we ask our ushers to prepare to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards. And then as the worship team comes, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can know you through your attributes, who you are. And pray, Lord God, that we would allow them to just go down deep into our hearts and minds that we would uh, experience you 
afresh and anew. Lord, we just commit ourselves to you today and we ask that your Holy Spirit would work in each heart and mind. Uh, we just ask this in Jesus' name.